Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Guayaquil, Ecuador, taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. If you can't get through on the phones, no problem. Just email me your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it throughout the show. So much to talk about in the news this week. Most of it not pleasant, at least in this particular segment. Of course, I'm talking about the most recent incidents in Istanbul at the airport at Ataturk. For those of you who listen to the show, you know that I go through that airport a lot. It's the third busiest airport in Europe, one of the busiest airports in the world, and I happen to think one of the most secure. Uh, and yet, the terrorists struck with ease, and we all know how many people were killed. Should that stop you from taking a trip anywhere? Should that stop you from going to Turkey? Should that stop you from leaving your own home? Well, I have some thoughts on that. And I also have some thoughts about airport security in general. Uh, First of all, let's deal with the fear factor. You might notice, or you might have noticed, that they did not close the Istanbul airport after this bombing. Uh, They made a a, a clear attempt to send a very clear and distinct message to the world that they were going to stay open. And guess what? They're open, and they're operating normally. 
Remember, most people who use that airport are not flying to Istanbul. They're flying through it. It's one of the major hub airports in the world, connecting Asia, uh, connecting the Middle East, and connecting uh, Europe. It's right there. It's the cro- it literally is the crossroads, as all of Turkey is. Uh, that's number one. Number two, let's talk about where the terrorist attacked and what lessons we can learn from that. You know, if you're going to the airport in Istanbul or many other high-risk airports, or at least high-volume airports, they had a security perimeter outside the terminal area uh, by the curb where you couldn't enter the terminal unless you showed a boarding pass and identification. And I think that's a good idea. So where did the terrorists hit? They hit in the area that was the most vulnerable at that point, arrivals, where people are felt, well, they've already cleared security, they're home, and they're, they're leaving. I'm sure that will be addressed now. But now let's go back to understand real airport security and a bigger issue that needs to be addressed. And that goes back to 9-11. After 9-11, we had a situation in some airports in the United States. They redefined the word security perimeter and who was allowed to come to the airport. And what they did, uh, I'll give you an example, Los Angeles International. They had a rule right in the wake of 9-11. No meters or greeters. That means a family of 12 couldn't come to the airport to say goodbye to you. No private vehicles. You couldn't drive your car to the airport. It had to be an authorized taxi cab, limousine, or a vetted bus. Then they established a physical security perimeter at all the entrance points to the airport, about a quarter of a mile away, where every car was stopped, trunks and hoods were opened, and inspected. Well, guess what happened? The airports functioned well, smoothly, on time. They were uncrowded. Passengers enjoyed the experience. Everything worked. Well, guess what happened about two weeks later? The rules were rescinded. Why were the rules rescinded? And this goes back to another point I always make about this. They were rescinded because concessionaires at the airport were complaining they'd lost so much revenue because people weren't coming to the airport. Is an airport about revenue? Do I go to an airport to dine? Do I go go to an airport to move in? Do I go to an airport to entertain my friends? Do I go to an airport to shop? Let's get down to the basic definition of an airport. I go to an airport not to go to the airport, but to go through it. Anytime I see cute little rocking chairs at airport terminals, I have a problem because they send the wrong message. The message being, you're going to be here a while. I don't want to be there a while. So I think we need to really call it what it is. A means to an end, not a destination. And for those people who have now based their economic model of airports on revenue, you're going to have to readdress that. And here's what we do. It's called eminent domain. You basically tell all the concessionaires who are located outside security areas that they're no longer going to be there. You establish a fair market value for their business. You buy them, and they're gone. You then do go back to the 9-11 deal. No private vehicles allowed to come to the airport. No meters and greeters. You don't need the entire extended family. Guess what? You establish that security perimeter not just at arrival points at the departure level, but departure points at the arrival level so that you're actually securing it all. And guess what happens? Airports work. People leave on time. People arrive on time. They're not stuck in traffic because there is no traffic. And you know what? It's not about revenue. It's about common sense. It's about making intelligent choices about the real world in which we live in. You know, if you take a look at airport security right now around the world, and this will happen when I leave Guayaquil, To go back to the United States, it'll happen if I leave Rome to go back to the United States. They will still ask me the most stupid moronic questions that they've been asking since 1988, 
They can only be answered by yes or no, and it accomplishes nothing. Did you pack the bags yourself? Have they been with you all times, and did anybody give you anything? It's always yes, yes, and no. This doesn't provide security. This is theater. And by the way, it's bad theater. So let's take the hard choice here of choosing common sense over economic impact and looking at some long-term decisions that will benefit everybody. Go back and look at airport design. Anybody outside of security perimeter is not in business anymore. Pay them off. Close off the airport except to authorized vehicles and authorized passengers. Now, we're not turning it into a fortress, just the opposite. We're making it flow, we're making it move, and we're making it work. Anybody who disagrees with me is in denial or not having, or they haven't flown anytime soon. You know, I've always said that people who've designed airports have never flown, just like most people who design hotel rooms have never stayed in one. It might be a good idea for people to realize that there's a way to make a difference here, there's a way to improve security without jeopardizing your basic rights, without infringing upon your values, and at the same time, making your experience actually better. Um, by the way, when you get rid of all those outside perimeter concessionaires, you're able to then redesign the security areas so that maybe at certain airports that were not designed because of the TSA, they can more adapt to what the TSA needs to make our lives even easier in terms of the passenger flow at security checkpoints. It all works out that way. And if anybody disagrees with me, here's my number, 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. And something tells you you might be a concessionaire. But you know what? I'm sorry. It's not about airport revenue. You know what? Airports should never be designed to make money. Airports should be designed to serve passengers. They should not be designed to lose money. So basically, if you want to buy a newspaper inside security, maybe it's twice as much. I don't care. What I do care about is who has access to that terminal who wants to do harm to me, you, and everybody else. And the way you make that work is by taking the common sense decisions that have to be taken and back it up. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations that are doing all that essential and hard work all around the world. Well, guess what? Why are we in Guayaquil? Well, one of the reasons, of course, is for the premiere of the Royal Tour, which many of you have already heard of and hopefully many of you have already seen in the United States. It's actually premiering this week here in Ecuador. But there's another reason why we're here, and that is a little less than two months ago, there was, actually a little more than two months ago, there was a devastating earthquake in this country uh, that rocked this place. And uh, I've been through an earthquake or two myself in California. In fact, I lost my house in one of them. So I understand what can happen. Uh, but when those events happen, it's not just the first responders that come in. Uh, and they are essential and they have to come in because of basic infrastructure, immediate aid, medical issues, et cetera, et cetera, rescue, recovery, but then it's the second and the third responders who make the difference, who really build the communities back. And those are the people I have on my lists that you can get to every week at petergreenberg.com. Organizations like 
Operation USA and Petronemkova's group called Happy Hearts and many, many others around the world, AmeriCares. I mean, the list goes on and on. And opportunities for you to get involved in an up-close-and-personal way every time you travel. Not necessarily in the, in, the, in, the, in the wake of an immediate disaster, but just to work with communities all around the world because there are so many needs that have to be filled. Well, in the case of the earthquake in Ecuador, one of those groups is a group called All Hands. And they are here. And they've been working since day one. In fact, literally since maybe day two. And joining me now, the Director of International Operations, Gary Pitts. How are you, sir? Good afternoon. What brings you down here, and how fast did you get down? I was on the ground within 72 hours. So you guys have to be mobilized quickly. Absolutely. Uh, and you know what, what most people don't realize, you know, there's, there's the Red Cross. They have to come in for the immediate medical needs, housing, shelter, uh, treatment, triage, right? Uh, in many cases, local governments aren't properly equipped to do all the work. They don't, they don't have enough helicopters. They don't have enough vehicles. Sure, sure. And then, of course, you've got the situation where the basic infrastructure is damaged or destroyed. Like, how do you get supplies in if the roads are out? Absolutely. If the bridges are down, if the trains aren't running. And that was very much the case here in Ecuador, wasn't it? Yes, there was uh, restrictions to the affected areas from the locations where supplies would have been kept, making it harder for people to get in and respond. Now, you're based in Bangkok. Actually, you're based in Thailand. I am. You had to get here from Thailand. Absolutely. And, and you got here within 72 hours. Most people can't get to New York within 72 hours. <laughs> it's something we do a lot of, so we're well-practiced. Um, we also had staff on the ground, or ex-staff and volunteers on the ground already, so we were able to quickly respond and assess and determine that there was a need to get me and the rest of the assessment team here quickly. And you just said the right words. You have to be able to assess before you can respond. Of course. What was the assessment? The assessment involved speaking to uh, national parties and then being directed to a certain uh, location. We then basically look for, I guess, the unmet needs. So we were given a very broad area uh, to, to look at. Had you been to Ecuador before? I had never been to Ecuador. So you were hitting the ground running at a place that was a brave new world. Absolutely. Luckily, Do you speak Spanish? I don't speak Spanish. However, I had people that you were speak help, though. You speak I, help. I do speak help. I can bring some help. You know, you know, you know the word or the kind of conjugate the verb ayudar. Uh, I do. not even that. I had a great translator who was from Ecuador and helped me out massively. So you hit the ground running within seventy-two hours. You assess the situation. A lot of the roads are out. A lot of the op, a lot of the, the the routes that will be available to you normally to get the aid there were not. So you had a big challenge. For, for us, we're not delivering aid, so it was getting ourselves in, which the small roads were available, local people knew how to get to where we needed to get to, so by working with the community, we were okay. So, All Hands is not a group that delivers water and supplies, you're doing something else. Absolutely. We're looking for the next phase after the immediate release. Which is really what I'm talking about, not the first responders, the second responders. Absolutely. We had a recovery. Okay, so what were you doing? What were you bringing in? What were you, what were you actually accomplishing? So we brought in skills, personnel, and looked at where needs had been missed and what sorts of things our competencies could help us address. Such as? Such as primarily housing is what we found in, in Ecuador. Uh, there are a vast number of people On the streets? Displaced. Absolutely. Literally? Uh, literally on the streets uh, with host families living in impromptu camps. 
the first couple of weeks there was little organization around those people who had fled the coastal line for fear of tsunami. And, and that happens a lot in situations like this. Of course. Displacement is a, a common thing that happens with people's homes destroyed. All right, so you have a situation, and by the way, you've done some amazing work in Nepal, which, by the way, still needs so much help. Of course. People forget about that. When did that actually happen? That was April 2014. All right, so we're now over two years later, and there are no... 2015, I'm sorry. Okay, so almost two years later then, <laughs> and they're still needing help. Absolutely. There, there's been a number of challenges in, in Nepal, not least the, the weather and the remoteness of people that need help and just the vastness of, of the damage in that event. So part of your job has to be creating awareness to let people know that that help is still needed and people need to be mobilized to do that. Of course. I want to dispel a myth, if I can, about the words volunteer vacation. Mm. Because it's, it's a kind of a buzzword that people, hey, you can help out when you travel, you're, you know, you're at the spa, but you can give three hours at an orphanage. I get that. Mm. That's not what you're doing. Not at all, no. I mean, this is not a vacation. You are dedicated 100% of your time to helping. Absolutely. When our volunteers come in, it's, it's not volunteerism. It, it really is you are, you're working to meet the need in the community. And everything around the experience is there to help those people that need help. Gary, I'm talking with you about all hands. How are you funded? We're funded through uh, various methods, predominantly through uh, donations from uh, both public and from corporations. And also, we work in an implementing partner model in some instances. And by the way, the website is allhands.org. And what's interesting about that is it gives you an opportunity to, to volunteer as well. We're going to talk to some of those volunteers a little bit later. But, but what I found interesting about your website is you're very clear about what you're not. Absolutely. You know, so it's it, actually hands.org. Sorry about that. But yeah. That's an important point. And yes, no, we are very clear. We're very uh, precise on, on the sort of people that we want to, to bring, which is anyone that wants to help. But we're also very clear that it's not a holiday and we won't be taking you to any spas. You'll be coming and living in rough... You'll be lucky if you get a shower. In some instances, yes. Yeah, we, we have to suffer the same as anyone else in that situation. And you have to immerse yourself in that community, not to take over, but to help them. That's the key. It's to understand what they need, you have to immerse yourselves in them. We can't walk in pretending that we know. We have to work with the community to find out what their needs are and address them correctly. And by the way, they'll be very quick to tell you. They know. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Once, once you have their trust, once they know that you're there for the right reasons, they're, they're very happy to give you as much guidance as you want. Well... We're here in Guayaquil, and let's set the stage here of a sense of place. Quito is not that badly affected by the earthquake, but the coastal cities were. Absolutely. Right? Places like Manta or Canoa. So, yeah, we're based in Canoa. Uh, Pedernales was mostly described as kind of ground zero, which is about an hour and a half north of Canoa. And then all the way down the, the coast throughout two provinces, uh, there's a, a kind of trail of destruction, I suppose, as the earthquake rolled down. You can track it. You can see, yeah, certainly up until it hits the Andes, uh, which is in the middle of the country, uh, you, can, you can track the, the damage. When you, when you get to the ground, you, you showed up within 72 hours, how many of there were you? In our team, there were around six. There were six. And how many are you now? I mean, I mean you, you had well, to grow. 
uh, yeah, so at the moment, including volunteers, we're probably at around the 60, 65 mark in terms of people on the ground. Is that a normal contingent for you? Yes, that's, that's as, as average as these things are. That's average. Well, there's nothing average about any disaster. Indeed. Well, when we come back, what I want to talk to you about is what still needs to be done, not just here in Ecuador, but in all the other areas where All Hands or Hands.org is doing the work. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. We're coming to you from Guayaquil in Ecuador a number of weeks after the earthquake and uh, talking about what you can do to help out, either from the comfort of your own home or to do what the guys at All Hands do, hands.org. They actually come down up close and personally and actively participate in the rebuilding effort. We're talking with Gary, who's in charge of the international relief effort here on the ground. Absolutely. 65 different volunteers of all shapes and sizes, right? Yes. What are the rules? Who can come down here and who can't? We don't have rules. That's the great thing. I like that organization. Okay. <laughs> we have some rules around safety, but in terms of who can come, we encourage everyone to come. And in fact, that's one of the pillars of our organization. And what am I... Okay, let's say I'm showing up. What am I going to be doing? Well, we have a selection of, of projects going on at any one time, and um, you're encouraged to sign up to whatever you want. If you have a specific skill, then we can also look at how we can best use that. But what if I failed shop in high school? I mean, I'm, I'm not the best hammerer. <laughs> so what, what, could, what, would you, what would you put me to do? What would you get me to do? We'd train you up. We have an experienced staff who can teach you to do what we need you to do to, to For example. meet our needs. So uh, at the moment, we are primarily constructing temporary houses um, to give immediate cover to families. Uh, and we'll be moving into permanent homes soon. Exciting to say. So now when you're building a temporary house mm. for a family, for example, how long does it take you to do that? At the moment, we're on about three and a half days. But as the teams do it more, they get quicker. That's pretty fast. It has to be. You're trying to give people emergency shelter. So. And emergency shelter in a situation where there's no plumbing to speak of, right? Electricity mm -hmm. is rare. Yep. Right. So you've got generators out there too? Uh, we do a lot of things by hand. In fact, our buildings at the moment are constructed from bamboo. So it's, it's mostly lashing things together than... Um, so you've gone, you've gone back to the future here. It's, it's old school. It's, it is. It's, it's, it's Asian. It's, it's Asian. It's, it's traditional. It's, yeah. uh, it's a, a culturally acceptable building methodology, which people trust. After seeing many concrete houses fail, uh, bamboo is becoming more popular in Ecuador, I believe. Bamboo tends to sway a little bit. It does. It, have, it has it a gives. natural it flexibility, yeah. which makes it good for earthquakes. Wow. Okay, that's the temporary housing. Mm. When do you go to permanent? So the permanent is due to start next week. Our first house is, is going to start going up then. Also bamboo? Also made of primarily bamboo. Wow. With some other materials to make it as permanent as we can. Is there any estimate of how many people were displaced? The latest numbers around... 80,000 people. That's huge. Yeah. And how many can you actually help? I mean, you're just one organization. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, we, we can only play our part. And it's important to understand your scope and, and work within it. Um, so we're targeting, in all, depending on funding, to be perfectly honest, we're targeting probably up to 250 families. 
You know what? It doesn't sound like a lot considering 80,000 people, but you're making a difference. Absolutely. With the average number of five per family, the, the numbers start to add up. And, you know, I always say this every time I talk about volunteerism, if you will. Mm. Uh, it is, at its core, an opportunity to immerse yourself in the culture, to really become a part of the community, to learn, um, and to build bridges that you otherwise never even knew existed. I mean, the relationships that are formed in this situation are, are lifelong. Absolutely. There is a, a great opportunity for a person who's willing to, to come and help those people in need that you do build that relationship. I still have relationships with families that I met in, in Tacloban when I first started with the organization as a volunteer. How long ago was that? That was around two and a half years ago now. Wow. And what were you doing before that? Before that, I was actually in, uh, in IT. I was a computer support person. Very different life. So you went to geek to hands-on? Uh, or yeah. hands-org? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Let's talk about Nepal for a second, mm -hmm. because when people listen to this show, I mean, there is a certain you know, mythological approach to certain destinations, right? Nepal being one of them. I mean, it might be on somebody's bucket list. Oh, I'll go help out there because I've always wanted to go there, mm. right? Mm. That's not really the right approach to take, is it? No. I mean, anything that drives you to, to help is a good thing. However, go there because you want to, to make a difference to the, the event, I think. Don't go there expecting to tour the country and, um, and to, to see the tourist sites that, that are in any of the countries that we're working in. Go there to expect to work to get to know the community and to have a different experience to if you were just a tourist given the infrastructure there and the need that's there would you say that's still critical absolutely nepal it will continue to have needs for unfortunately probably many years to come but then there are other places as well that have uh, just as many needs including within the united states yeah let's not forget that mm. well bottom line is you guys are doing great work you can become an all-hands volunteer. The website is easy because you drilled it into me now. <laughs> Hands.org. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go As many of you know, uh, two months ago we had the premiere of Ecuador, the Royal Tour in New York, and then the next night in Chicago. We talked about it on this show. And then, sadly, four days later, a very serious earthquake struck the country, and the president flew back. He was actually in Rome at the time. And uh, that work on rebuilding Ecuador is still continuing. And I'm joined now by the president of Ecuador, President Rafael Correa. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Peter. Nice to see you again. You know, it's... I, I've lived through one earthquake in California. It, I lost really? my house. Uh, oh, I was in the house at the time. Yes, in 1994. So I have okay. some personal experience, but the earthquake here... It's a terrible experience. It is. And when you came back, seeing that devastation must have made quite an impression. Of course. No, this has been hardest days of my government and the hardest days of my life, in my life, you know. It's one thing when there's an, an accident or a devastation, but when it also wipes out a lot of the infrastructure, 
when the roads are, are gone and, and you can't get supplies and it must be so frustrating to try to mobilize the efforts to, to help. But it, it is not the most important thing, the, the most painful part of the tragedy is the loss of lives. You know, we, we had uh, 670 deaths because of the earthquake. And so the material part, we can recover that. Of course. But life. The lives lost. No. Yes, it is not possible to recover. But one of the things that I've noticed, and certainly you've noticed, is the spirit of the people. Yes, yes, a wonderful reaction. The tragedy is very huge, but even bigger is the spirit of the people, the willingness uh, to overcome this tragedy. One of the things we talk about on my show all the time is the opportunity to volunteer, whether it's an afternoon or a day or a week, not just in terms of, of a natural disaster, but in communities around the world that need help. And there are so many communities that do. But when you have something of this magnitude, like the tsunami in Asia in 2004, or the, or the earthquake uh, in Nepal, or now here in Ecuador, it really has to mobilize people to really want to commit themselves to come down and help. Well, we receive support from all around the world. Volunteers are always important, very important. But uh, as important as this is the organized response of the society. And this response must be through the state. So we we had resources, institutions that respond very well, react very well to the tragedy. You know, there's such a geographic ignorance among so many people in the world when something like this happens. I remember when the, the terrible BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. People thought that Fort Lauderdale was affected. It had nothing to do with it. You had the earthquake here in, in Ecuador, and yet there are many communities that really weren't that badly affected, like Quito. I mean, Quito didn't suffer too much. Well, but we we, we felt the earthquake oh, yes. also in Quito, yes. all around the, the country, you know. But of course, the, there were some uh, territories where the, the, the earthquake was very strong. For instance, Manaví, Esmeralda, Los Ríos. But in Quito, the airport stayed open, more or less. Yes, yes. And and it's still open. Everything well, is open. the station is just in some places, like some parts of Manabí, a very important province, very important uh, part of the country, uh, south part of Esmeraldas. Uh, in the rest of the country, we, we, we could uh, feel, we could uh, realize, we could... Uh, uh, we we feel the, the earthquake, but we didn't have debt, we didn't have sure. uh, material destruction. But in Manabí, Esmeraldas, and uh, Los Ríos, perhaps, well, the devastation was very huge. You know, it's interesting when we talk about subjects like this and situations like this, you have the first responders. They're the people who go in right away for immediate medical needs and loss yes. of life or saving lives. But then comes the harder work, the second responders. There are three estates steps in the emergency if you want. First step, well, the emergency itself. We react very well, the institutions worked, uh, the resources uh, were, uh, were ready. For instance, health services, rescue services, for instance, uh, food, water, etc. Safety is very important after an earthquake or a natural disaster like this. But the second step is to reconstruct, to rebuild the the material destruction. So we are working very hard in order to do that as soon as possible. But there is a third step, perhaps the most important step, the economic reactivation. People uh, recovering their jobs, 
uh, territories recovering their economic activities. So we are working very hard also uh, on this subject. You know, in some situations where there's been that devastation, uh, a good friend of mine who uh, started her own charity, uh, Petra Nemkova, the, the model, who was basically left for dead in the in the tsunami in 2004 in Thailand, she realized that in situations like this, it's important as a second responder to go in and rebuild the schools. Because when you rebuild the schools, you allow the community to sort of regrow. That was our priority. Just last Monday, I... Uh, inaugurate the school year for the uh, territories that uh, were devastated by the earthquake. So now 100% of our kids are going to, to school, you know? And if they go to school, that means the parents can go to work. So we built 27 provisional schools in order to receive around 60,000 60, uh, kids. In just this amount of time, That's less than short. 80 years after the earthquake. Wow! That's yes, amazing. no, no. The Ecuador is is responding very well to the tragedy. It's, it has been really a, a pain, a, a huge pain, a huge tragedy, a huge emergency. But the Ecuadorian society, the country itself, are responding very well. Now, as you know, because we talked about this off air. Uh, we produced the Royal Tour. Most of my crew was down here and had a tremendous time. And when this tragedy happened, some of my crew said, we have to go down and help. And they came down. And they worked with some of the NGOs to, thank you very much. to rebuild. Don't thank me. Thank them. Yes. I mean, they came down to rebuild everything. And thank not, them. <laughs> and, and, and not just one of our producers, but she brought her kids. And, and, and they did it, too. So this is Wonderful. something people no, can do. Always, uh, volunteers are very important and very helpful. But after that, we have to continue, to continue rebuilding, to continue reactivating. So we are working very hard in order to do so. But they are simultaneous if you want activities. You have to rebuild, for instance, schools, for instance, houses. But for people, it's very important also to have a job, to have income, to have money. So economic reactivation is perhaps the most important part after the after the if you want the emergency itself, and they have to have confidence. Yes, right. They have to. But you know, the, it, it's, I am very proud of my country. You know, because Manabí was the the by far the most hit territory in Ecuador. Now you are you know almost one hundred percent of the deaths are from Manabí, but we did a national. Um, Encuesta, survey, no, and the the territory more optimistic about the future is exactly, precisely Manabí. It's incredible. You, now you and I were in Manta, which is not far from wh where all the devastation happened. Well, Manta yeah. has suffered a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah, and now there are a lot of deaths and a lot of material destruction in Manta. The, the port itself, the Manta is the most important fishing port in Ecuador, and the port was very harmed. What's the one thing, if you said we need it fixed right now, that you need more than anything? Economic reactivation for these territories. After the tragedy itself, because we are mourning our debts, we are very sad. We lost a, a lot of kids, a lot of, some families disappeared. But we have to overcome our, our sadness, if you want, and continue working. 
So the most urgent thing to do now is to reactivate the economy in the territories devastated by the earthquake. And travel and tourism can play a role. Of course. Yeah. If you want to have apps, the best, to, the best way to do so is to visit Ecuador, to know a wonderful country. And also you can get involved in helping in those areas. You can actually help in the rebuilding too. Yes, of course, always. There, uh, there is place for volunteers. But if you want to, to, to visit us, to come to do some tourism. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Let your motor If you've been listening to the show up until now, you know that one of the reasons why we're down here is to talk about all the relief efforts that are going on uh, throughout the country in the wake of their terrible earthquake a couple of months ago, and also what you can do. But let's expand that in terms of how you can get involved all over the world with great organizations. You've heard me talk about Operation USA that was started by Julie Andrews, gosh, 25, almost 30 years ago. Um, and those guys were amazing in being the one of the first organizations removing landmines in Cambodia and Vietnam, uh, having teams on the ground right after the tsunami in 2004 in Asia. Uh, Happy Hearts, started by Petra Nemkova right after that tsunami in 2004, uh, where she's built over 140 schools in communities all over the world uh, because she realized that if you build a school, you're basically saving a community and allowing them to get back to work. Uh, and then there's a group called All Hands, and their website is hands.org. You know, we talked earlier in the show about what they're doing here in Ecuador, but they really are worldwide. And joining me now is Tanya Glanville-Wallace, officially based in Massachusetts, but living the good life in the south of France. But <laughs> you're here in Guayaquil helping out here in Ecuador. But what's interesting about relief work is I think we make a mistake in thinking that it's just overseas. It's right in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, so we currently have projects in Nepal, Fiji, and Ecuador. Those are our international projects. Um, at an, and at any one time, we will have two or three ongoing in the States. So currently, we're based out of South Carolina, and that's a long-term recovery after the floods in October last year. And, um, and anybody re watching the news these days knows there are floods in West Virginia. Yes. I mean, floods in Kentucky. I mean, there are floods everywhere right now. It's crazy. It is. Um, and we're also in Texas at the moment, so that's an immediate response to the flooding that recently occurred there. We had a thing on CBS the other day in, in West Virginia when they had the flooding, and it was one of the most graphic uh, visuals that motivated a lot of people. It wasn't just the sight of a house takes, torn off its foundations floating down the river. The house was floating down the river, and it was on fire. Goodness. I mean, it was like you couldn't have a more graphic example of the de devastation that can happen in situations like this. Exactly, and that's right there in the States, and I think people forget they get so sort of impressed by what they see on the news abroad and they forget that there's just as much chaos at home sometimes as well. So what impressed you to join All Hands? I mean, before this you were a what? I was a corporate lawyer. How many months ago? <laughs> um, just over a year ago. Okay, what was the, what was the, the catalyst for you? Um, for me, I, was, I found my job a little bit stale um, and I really wanted to do something and make a difference in the world, which sounds horribly cliched. Um, but you can say it again. It's okay. Yeah. I can say it again. I took a sabbatical 
Um, Which and turned at, into be a, a rather long sabbatical. Exactly. And at the beginning of that sabbatical, um, the earthquake hit Nepal. And for me, it was a very um, personal decision to do it because I had a, a sort of long love affair with Nepal. Um, and it was an opportunity for me to give back to a country that had given me so much. Um, so I headed out there last summer um, during the monsoon season. Um, to but, what, but what did you know about relief work? Nothing, right? Very little, very little. I'd been on the UN books as a volunteer, but had never been called up. Um, and so... And this is, ha- this is truly hands-on. Exactly, exactly. And then Nepal happened, and I discovered this wonderful little organization online called All Hands Volunteers. And I jumped, and out I went to Nepal, and that's where I met the founder, and that sort of triggered um, this series of events, which has led me to now. And now it's full time. Now it's full time. So back at the up at the law firm, they're missing you terribly, but it's over. <laughs> it's over. Did your friends think you were nuts to do this, or did you able, were you able to recruit some of your friends to come see exactly what you were doing? No, I haven't been able to do that yet. Um, I'm at a certain age where people are settling down and getting married. I think they do think I'm a little nuts, but at the same time, they're motivated to donate because that's the position that they're in in their lives. So although they can't come and join in in a hands-on way, they can help in other ways. Well, you know, I've always said if you can't get there physically, it's okay to donate as long as you follow the money. you got to know where exactly. it's going. Right. Exactly. I mean, how I mean, I know certain organizations that I'm involved with. We actually proudly say that 97 percent, seriously, 97 percent of the money that we get goes back out. It, there's no like administrative cost. I mean, we don't yeah. have a budget to operate on. That's the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we pride ourselves on as well. So any donations you make online are 100 percent going to all our projects worldwide. And you do have the opportunity online to select specific projects if you have an affiliation with that country or for whatever reason you want to support that particular project, you're able to do so also. Now, I know that, that anybody can join yes. and become... Who's your youngest volunteer? Who's your oldest? Well, we're able to have guardians, um, which allows us to have some of the younger generation. We wouldn't recommend anybody under 16 comes on site because we've got to understand that this is a disaster zone. Um, and often you're going into an active seismic zone, for instance. Um, but then we, we will have people in their 60s and 70s come out and join us. Um, we recently had a 62-year-old in Nepal who threw himself into it for three or four weeks. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. As many of you know, we were down here last year in August uh, shooting a one-hour special called Ecuador the Royal Tour with President Rafael Correa. We had a crew of about 40 uh, all over the country. It's airing now on many of your PBS stations, and it's premiering this week here in Ecuador. And for many of our crew who had never been here before, it was not just an opportunity to work on a show, but to immerse themselves in a brave new world, in a country, in a culture that they'd never been to before. And uh, my next guest is certainly no exception to that. She was the executive in charge, Lisa Blakeberg. Four days after we had the premiere of the show back in April was the devastating earthquake. And that hit a lot of people hard, including Lisa, and it motivated her to do something that a lot of people should be doing. She grabbed her two kids 
Aaron and Taylor and came down here and spent uh, nearly two weeks with the All Hands folks, their website again, hands.org, in local communities that were especially hard hit, helping them to literally rebuild. Lisa has brought Aaron and Taylor with her today because they're still in Ecuador. What was the experience like for you? The experience was everything that I hoped that it would be in terms of as a mom seeing my kids rise to the occasion of giving of themselves to people in need and making friends and just, wow, they made me so proud. What exactly were you expecting and then what exactly did, did you actually experience? I was... Because you'd been to to Ecuador during the shoot. Yes. You were in Manta when we shot there. I mean, you were in parts of these locations that were then badly hit. Yeah, I was. So you had to come back and see it. Yeah, it was was upsetting to see this beautiful country so devastated. Um, In honesty, I I knew that we would be camping. I... But wait a minute. Let's let's describe the word camping. Yes. This isn't like s'mores. This no. isn't, no, this is not, you know. This little, is hardcore. This is hardcore, this is right? This really hardcore. And I should also let everybody know that, that a big shout out goes to a number of people because once Lisa said she wanted to do this, I got in touch with the, the All Hands guys. Uh, I got in touch with United Airlines. I got in touch with Cabela's, the great outfitter out in Nebraska, yeah. uh, with the folks at the Wyndham Hotel Group right here, both in Guayaquil and in Quito. And without hesitation, every one of those groups got involved. United Airlines got, gave the volunteers the tickets. Cabela's gave them the gear that they needed, including the tents and the yes. sleeping bags and, and, and everything that they would need. Um, Wyndham provided a hotel room when you were done so you could actually take a shower, uh, which, was, which, by the way, was, was a luxury. Felt wonderful. Uh, and wonderful, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, of course, you know, the, uh, the, the folks, when you think about it, um, who got involved did so immediately because they knew. So here you were. You brought your gear down with you, but it's not really camping, is it? No, it's not. It's hard work. I mean, the people who, I mean, we were only here, you know, on site for 10 days. There are people that are there for months at a time, and they work so hard from, they get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they are working until 4, 4.30 at night, and it is back-breaking work. You know. Chopping bamboo is a, serious effort. Now, Aaron's sitting next to you. He's, starting, he's smiling a little bit, but it was hard work, wasn't it? Yes, it was uh, It was pretty tough. Uh, it was definitely what I expected it to be, but it was worth it. What was the biggest surprise for you? Um, How friendly everyone is. I thought it would be kind of a serious setup with everyone just focused on work and, you know, less play, more, you know, focus on the task at hand, but... Everyone who was there was very welcoming to my brother and I, and it definitely made our experience more enjoyable. And but it was but it was hard work. Yeah, the work was definitely... I mean, give me an idea of what your day was like. We would wake up and get dressed. We wouldn't really get to take showers, you know. Um, breakfast was quick and you know we would all rush out with our gear help our team leaders set up and we would go to different sites that they had uh i for one went to a demolition site uh for one of the days and it was just banging down walls taking huge posts out building with bamboo you'd never done that Um, before right no i've learned a lot in the past 10 days, and it's definitely something I'm proud of. What was the biggest challenge for you? 
biggest challenge was, wow, um, probably just getting used to everything. Uh, it, it was a lot like sleepaway camp for me, but the work was harder and you were with adults. You weren't with other kids. You know, it was a lot of older people. And Are you trying to tell me there was adult supervision? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was it was fun. Um, you know, like I said, everyone was nice. They weren't strict about anything really. You know, once you were done working, it was like a big family. You got to have fun. You got to sit and talk and get to know one each other. And make friends. Yeah, make friends, definitely. Well, when we come back, one of the things I want to talk about is what you weren't really expecting. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? We've been speaking to uh, to Lisa and Aaron Blake Burke, and uh, and of course uh, Taylor was also involved. I mean, this is not exactly your typical summer vacation, is it, Taylor? Nope, not at all. Well, what exactly did you do every day on this trip? Because you know, kids who are your age are like maybe they are going to camp, and maybe they are just going to like have a summer vacation. This was okay. You're getting on a plane. You're you're schlepping all this gear. You're hitting the ground running in a place you've never been. Must have been tough. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't it wasn't as easy as I thought it would. I thought it'd be like waking up later, having fun. Waking up later. <laughs> what time were you waking up, Taylor? Uh, six o'clock. Wow, six I, o'clock. I know Taylor. Waking up at six o'clock is a brave new thing for him. Okay. Yeah. But every day. Every day, unless we have a day off, which is rarely. But yeah, woke up at six o'clock. From six to seven, we had breakfast, and then from there on till four or four thirty, we had to work at a site. And what were you doing? Oh, well, most of my days I spent at a site called Madre Tierra, which was an IDP camp. Which, which, mean, which means what? Internally displaced persons, which was um, a camp that we um, built uh, shelters for, for um, all the families that didn't have homes and who needed somewhere to stay. Now, I'm assuming you're 16. You met a lot of 16-year-olds, too. No. No? I mean, I mean, yes, there at the camp, there was a lot of 16-year-olds. That's what I'm saying. None that I work with. Yeah. No, but what I'm saying, you met people who were displaced who were 16, yeah, too. a lot of them. So, I mean, you were truly develop, directly helping them. Yes. Were they surprised about the level of assistance they were getting? Meaning, you know, it's one thing to be home one day and the next thing you have no home. And then all of a sudden strange people show up with hammers. You know, it's, it's got to be a, a, a jarring in a way. I mean, well, some of the kids at the camp that we worked at helped us out when they saw we were coming in the morning. A lot of them brought us fruits and food throughout the day to keep us going. And some of them decided to help. I was like, oh, yeah, can I have tonight? Use a tool. Can I help you hammer stuff? And yeah, they helped us. That's cool. Yeah. And you made friends. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, as a mom, I mean, it's one thing for you to come down as an adult, right? I mean, it's something that you've probably done before in other different ways, but nothing this hands-on, I would think in terms of physical labor. No, th- as a family, this was an amazing experience. I would highly encourage any parent with two, you know, uh, Taylor 16, Aaron 17, strong, big, capable guys. This was a f- fabulous family experience. What was the one thing that, as a mom, you weren't expecting? I was not expecting th- th- so much bonding that I would be able to do with my kids. 
That really surprised me to be able to work side by side with my children and work as a team, yeah, you not don't do mom. That. You, you don't do that in New York. I mean, when you think about it. You don't. You don't. It, because I wasn't mom. I was like more of a colleague in a way. And um, it was it was fantastic. Now, the boys talked about friends that they made, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure emails were exchanged. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What about mom? I, you know, because I was also shooting for travel detectives, so I didn't really try to engage so much uh, on a friendly level. I had to maintain a journalistic distance, so to speak. But I was so happy seeing Aaron and Taylor make so many friends and lovely people. So this is something that, that's, you know, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that when you do these kinds of things, whether it's here, Nepal, Japan, after the after their, you know, tsunami, I mean, those relationships stay on. Well, what was interesting is so many people uh, that were here in Ecuador had volunteered on several other of the projects, locations, and that's what they do with their time off. Well, they showed you the ropes then. They showed me the ropes, but more in- interestingly to me is when they get their two-week or three-week vacation, they go to Nepal or they go to Fiji or they come to Ecuador. So basically what they're doing is they're dedicating every year. Yes. Not their vacation, they're dedicating their time. Yeah, these people are, it's amazing, the heart and compassion. Now, the most important question for both Taylor and, and, and Aaron is this. Over and above the friends that you made, over and above the experience that you had, did you learn any new skills? I mean, I learned a lot of new skills because um, we worked a lot with bamboo, which is something I never thought we'd be working with to make houses. And I mean, it was fun, fun to learn new stuff, and I'm sure I can use it in my future. Wow. Aaron? Uh, same as Taylor. I've learned so much. Um, but one thing's for sure is that if I'm ever stuck with a group of friends, uh, all I need is some, some bamboo and machete and I'll build us a house. No problem. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.